So let's bow and just ask God to uh, be with us as we uh, open his word this morning. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word and the power it has to shape our thoughts, shape our, our mindset on world events and uh, allow us to interact with world events with your view and with your thoughts in mind. And so, Father, as, as I share this morning, I pray that you would allow me to speak the truth in love. And, uh, Lord, we pray that our ears would be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a, the second message on the Christian re, or a Christian response to the uh, conflict in the Middle East. And uh, in the first message, we asked the question, has the church replaced Israel as God's people? And uh, what we discovered was no, in fact. Uh, the, the church certainly is God's people, but the, is, the, the uh, nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, still remain as God's chosen people. And, and I'm just going to sum it up with three verses from last week. Uh, the first one was, God, Paul asked, did God reject his people? By no means. Did they stumble so as to fall behind, beyond recovery? Not at all. And of course, Paul is talking about the Israelites here. And then uh, from Ezekiel, yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And we talked about the fact that the covenant that God made with the, the patriarchs was an everlasting covenant. And then uh, we talked about how God was going to reach out a second time and reclaim the surviving remnant of his people and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four winds of the earth. And we basically, I, I think we agreed, but anyways, my, my impression is that Israel today is the fulfillment of this passage. Um, and so that sort of sets the stage for the next big question that I want to ask this morning. Uh, is God involved in Israel's wars today? Ugh, wow, <laughs> I told you we'd get into the thorny, <laughs> into the thicket today. Is God involved in Israel's wars today? Um, and so, now during my, my personal Bible study reading, since uh, in September, uh, I've been reading through the books of uh, J Joshua and Judges. And I've just finished Judges. And um, sort of like the same time as this war has been taking place the whole period of time, I'm reading about these Old Testament wars that, are taking, that were taking place 4,000 years ago at the same time as it's taking place today. And in those two books, there's about 20 battles that take place. And you probably remember the first battle that Joshua fought. Who did he fight in the first battle? There was this thing about walls coming down. Jericho, thank you, yes. Okay. Was God involved in that battle? Uh... Maybe VeggieTales can help us with this. Camp ...to see if he could hear God. After he had gone a ways, he saw a strange man with a sword. Whoa! Josh wondered whether this guy was on his side or on Jericho's side. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Well... Josh realized that this was a messenger from God, so he immediately fell face down on the ground in reverence. <laughs> what? 
Uh, you gotta love Veggie Tales, eh? Okay, that's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, our kids love Veggie Tales, and uh, when I thought of that line uh, from, you know, as commander of the Lord's armies, I've now come. Jennifer pipes up, yeah, that's, that's from Veggie Tales, and I'm like, Veggie Tales? That's from the Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> we looked it up. Sure enough, we were both right. <laughs> and, um, but so, so was God involved? Absolutely. God drew up the battle plans. God had them marching around the city. God miraculously destroyed the walls of, of Jericho. And God won the day. And, uh, and then there was the next battle. AI. Doesn't stand for artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, but the next battle didn't go so well, did it? In fact, it says that God had decided to fight against the Israelites. Why? Because there was sin in the camp. God had said everything in Jericho was dedicated to God and to be burnt. And some guy named Achan decided, no, no, this is nice gold. This was good garments. I'm going to stick them in the bottom of my tent. And God says, that's it. There's sin in the camp. Not going to win battles. God was very involved. The next battle against five kings, God actually caused the sun in the sky to stop so that Joshua could uh, uh, destroy the five uh, kings and their armies. Um, and, uh, and the rest of the book of Joshua is punctuated with the Lord gave this city into the hands of Joshua. And then uh, the Lord handed this other city over to, to them. And then God spoke to Joshua about this battle or that what battle. And you know what the Bible says in, in J- Joshua? It says, For it was the Lord himself who hardened the heart, their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them to- totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. So essentially, you have God directing the battle and overseeing the battle and making sure the Israelites were wiping out the rest of the Canaanites. Yeah, that's what it says here. So that he might destroy them totally, exterminating with them without mercy. Really? Like genocide kind of thing? God directed extermination, really? Apparently... That's what it says. And I don't know about you, but that verse, and many others like it, kind of give me pause. They, they kind of make me feel a little uneasy about what the Bible is saying here. Like God is directing the Israelites to wipe these people out. And I'm like, whoa. And uh, I, there's very few Christians that I know when they read this verse and who believe in the authority of the Bible that don't squirm a little bit when they read this verse. Because it's a little bit shocking. How do we wrap our heads around it? Well, first of all, who is the author of the destruction in this passage? Is it the Israelites? Anybody? Who is it? It's the Lord himself. Very good. It takes a young person to answer. That's awesome. Thank you. That's a very good answer. It's the Lord himself. It's, it's so that he might totally destroy them. It's the Lord himself. And so um, God was using the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites. Well, why in the world was he doing that? 
Well, for that to answer that question, we have to go back to the covenants that we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the fact that God gave a covenant to Abraham. And if you look in chapter 15 of Genesis, you'll find that whole covenant. It's a whole chapter long. Uh, there's, there's animals chopped in half, and Abraham is chasing away the birds. And, and then God comes, and thick darkness comes, and there's a, a smoking fire pot, it says, that comes in between the halves of these animals. And God is making a covenant with Abraham. And he starts with, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. Uh, and then in, later on in the chapter, near the end, it says, And the Lord made a covenant with Abram to your descendants. I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphathites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites and the Jebusites. There's a lot of ites in there. Uh, a lot of people groups. But in the middle of the covenant, we get an explanation. He, right in the middle, in, in verses 13 and 16, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that will, they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You understand what God is saying to Abraham? He's saying, Abraham, you're here in this country. And there's Amorites and Kenites and all these other people all around you. And they're a sinful bunch. But they're not so sinful that I'm going to destroy them right now. I'm going to give them at least 400 years, and if you do the math, it's about 550 years. God says, I'm going to give them 550 years to repent and change, and otherwise you're going to come and kick them out, and you're going to get rid of them. In other words, God is being patient with the Amorites. He doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't want to wipe them from the face of the earth. Uh, and so they were sinful, but not bad enough to wipe them out right away. Um, you know, no, God gave Noah, the people of Noah's day, about a hundred years to repent while M M Noah was building an ark. They didn't repent. God wasn't willing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find just ten people who weren't wicked. But he couldn't find them. So he wiped out the city. And God gave... Nineveh, 40 days to repent. And they did. And God spared the entire wicked city. And so, you know, God isn't in the habit of just wiping people out. That's not his thing. But when the sin gets to a certain extent, God says, okay, that's enough. Somebody's got to wipe these people out. We've got to start afresh. And he did it with Noah. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and here... When it just so happens that the, when the nation of Israel finally, you know, the, they spend another 120 years in the land of Canaan, then they go to Egypt for 400 years, then they wander around the desert for 40 years, and finally they come back to the land of Canaan. And by that time, it seems the sin of the Canaanites had reached such an extent that God wanted them wiped out. You can look for this, 
this list of sins that were going on in Canaan in Leviticus 18. And there's this massive list of all kinds of horrible sexual sins. There's this sin of, of, uh, of sacrificing children to Moloch and to uh, the other deities. And uh, the, the sexual sins include um, homosexuality and bestiality. And God says, uh, well, I'll, let me read what it says. He says, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. It was mostly sexual sin that's being talked about. Even the land is defiled, so I will punish it for its sins. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. You must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. So God had predicted that this was going to happen, that it was so vile a place that God had to do a cleansing job. So it's pretty clear that God wasn't just willy-nilly exterminating just people he didn't like or exterminating a bunch of people so that his people could take the land. No, it was a judgment. It was a divine judgment on the people of Canaan. And you know, this reminds us that we, even God's people, have to be careful. You know, God says that the day of judgment is coming. And Jesus made it really clear, we need to be going about the Lord's business on that day. We, need, we don't want to be caught on that day living a sinful life. Um, we're, you know, the Bible says that all the people on the face of the earth are on the judgment, are under God's judgment. They're, they're essentially on their way to hell. The Bible says, for he, that is God, has set a day for judging the world with justice, by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. And he proved to everyone who, who this is by raising him from the dead. He set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything will be set right. There is coming a day of judgment. And Jesus will be the divine judge on that day. But just like God waited 550 years for the Amalekites to repent, and they never did, the Bible says God is patiently waiting for the world to repent. Peter says it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. You know, we've been waiting for Christ's return for 2,000 years. And uh, it's kind of like, feels like, man, it's kind of slow. And Peter says, no. The Lord's not slow in, in uh, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting to par- anyone to perish everyone to come to repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief and the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and since everything will be destroyed by fire this way what kind of people ought you to be now there's a question if the day of judgment is coming what kind of people should we be and he answers his his own question you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the lord Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. You know, the only way we can come to peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If we ask him to wash our sins away by his death on the cross, 
He will bring peace between us and God. That's why he came, to reconcile us with God and to give us a ministry of reconciling, reconciling other people to God. This is who we are. So back in Joshua's day, God literally fought. So going back to the earlier thought. <laughs> back in Joshua's day, God literally fought for Israel. Does God fight for Israel today? That's the burning question, isn't it? Well, I want you to hold that thought for a minute because we've got to do some more digging back in the Old Testament before I get to that idea. You see, if you go back to the books that I've been reading in, in my personal devotions, Joshua and Judges, you get to the book of Ju Judges. And in, in the book of Judges, chapter 2, it says that Joshua died. And all of his generation died. And a whole new generation rose up. And it says, who knew not the Lord. What in the world? Why weren't their kids being taught about the Lord? I don't know. I mean, when you look at all the miracles that happened and all the land that they took over, uh, why do their kids not know the Lord? But apparently they didn't. And it says, in verse 11, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. And they arose the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them in, into the hands of raiders who plundered them. Did you see that? The Lord's fighting for, for the Israelites all through the book of Joshua, except for Ai. And here, the Lord turns his hand against the Israelites and gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he swore to them, and they were in great distress. You see that? So yeah, God, the first part, you know, with Joshua, God's fighting the battles. It's amazing. And there's all these miracles. Next, next thing we find out is God is actually fighting against Israel. So, yeah, God's involved both ways. One way he fights for them, other times he fights against them. Depending upon what? Their sin state and where they are. Then, of course, what happens in the book of uh, Judges is the people repent. And they say, oh, God, we're so sorry. And, you know, they can't eat and they're being beat up and they're being killed and being slaughtered by the enemy. And they cry out to God, oh, sorry, Lord, we blew it. Uh, can you please forgive us? And God comes and he forgives them and he raises up a judge. And the judge uh, calls the people to arms and they go off and fight a battle and God is with them again and they win the battle. Generation later, what happens? Oh, they forget God again. And... They get taken captive again. They get beat up by, by a different nation. And they cry out to God. And God sends another del deliverer, whether it be Jephthah or Samson or uh, Gideon or all these different, or Deborah. All these judges came and rescued Israel. But every time, they went back into sin. Well, you know, I'm at the end of the book of Judges. And there's some pretty weird stuff happening in that book, let me tell you. But this story of the Israelites forgetting God goes on into the kings. 
You go to first and second king, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and then repeat it in first and second Chronicles, you have the same thing happening over and over again. Like dozens of times the people forget God, God sends the raiders, they get taken captive or they get punished, and then they cry out to God and God sends the deliverer and maybe the king or whoever. And this happens over and over again. And if you look through the entire Old Testament, you will find this story happening over and over and over again. In fact, the last half of the Old Testament is the prophets. And the prophets are saying, smarten up, guys. Smarten up, Israel, because you're going to get deported to Babylon if you don't smarten up. And, and they, they said this about uh, the northern tribes. And guess what? All the northern tribes got taken to Assyria. And then they, they said, don't, Judah and, and, and I think, what was the other, Benjamin possibly, I can't remember who of the two, two uh, tribes that were left were, but uh, the prophets are saying, don't forsake God or you're going to get shipped off just like your sister did. And sure enough, they forsake God and God comes in and allows the Babylonians to take them into captivity. That's about 70% of the Old Testament. I'm just roughly guessing here. It's about this cyclical story. The Israelites rejecting God, God punishing them with battle after battle, and them repenting, and then God rescuing them. I mean, if you read your Bible, you can't miss it. It's, it's just there. It's all over the place in there. Um, There's a total of 88 battles recorded in the Old Testament. And virtually all of them have the Lord either fighting for Israel or against Israel. It's written right in the text. Um, so that brings us today. If I mentioned in last week's message that Israel is still God's people in spite of the Christian church also becoming the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I mentioned that, right? And have, has Israel accepted Christ and put their faith in Christ? Well, no. So are they part of the new covenant? No. If God has any interest in Israel today, it's still as part of the old covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Israel today... Israel rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior when he came. They rejected their Messiah, and they still haven't received him. So if God is involved with the people of Israel, he's involved under the old covenant terms, not the new covenant terms. And we have to understand this. If they're still the people of God, it's not because Jesus died for their sins and they've become Christians. It's because of the old covenant. Um, <clears throat> the covenant says, that, that old covenant says that God will bless them if they fear God and God will curse them if they turn their backs on God. Um, and it seems to me that because they rejected Christ, that God banished them for 1,900 years. That's a pretty serious banishment. You ever been sent to your room for 1,900 years? You know, <laughs> that's a pretty serious banishment. <laughs> and, and 
as far as I can tell, that culminated in what we today call the Holocaust, where the Jews suffered horribly under the Nazi regime. Some serious punishment, that. Some serious punishment. But if we consider the recreation, recreation of Israel in 1948 as an act of God, remembering the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this reestablishment of Israel, is it based on the Old Testament covenant or the New Testament covenant of Christ's blood? No, it's the Old Testament. For the most part, Israel has not accepted this covenant. I can't explain it any other way. So track with me for a minute. God judges the people of Israel of 1,900 years of exile for rejecting the new covenant in Christ's blood. God sends the Holocaust. It's hard to imagine that that's from God. But maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just the devil trying to destroy the people of God. I'm not sure. But God uses it as the impetus for the Jews flocking back to Israel. In 1947, the British Mandate controls all the land of Israel, also known as Palestine. And the Jews fight the War of Independence. They're not even a nation at this point. The British literally were against the Jews coming there, and they kept trying to stop the Jews from coming into Palestine. And finally, when the Jews and, and, and the, the, the international body declared that they were going to have two states in this land, one the state of Israel and one the state of Palestine, uh, the Israelis they rejoiced, and, uh, and the Arabs said, no, that's not happening. We're, we don't want Israel. And, and the British, they just kind of went like, ah, we give up. These people are never going to get along. And they just left. They didn't give any help at all to the Israelis. They didn't give any help to the Palestinians either. They just like, we're out of here. And they, they left. And so what was left behind was a ragtag bunch of Israelis trying to fight their independence. And so I looked this up. I, I looked up how many tanks did J Israel own in 1947. You know how many tanks Israel had in its possession? Zero in 1947. No aircraft. In fact, I have a list of the, the, the guns that they had. Uh, they had a bunch of rifles. They had a bunch of machine guns. They had a, uh, some, uh, some mortars. But do you see any tanks? Do you see any, see any aircraft? Do you see any uh, howitzers? Any uh, uh, artillery guns? No, they had nothing. Just guns. That was it. How do you fight a modern-day war with just machine guns and rifles. It can't be done. <laughs> so that's in September 1947. Seven months later, May 14, 1948, Israel declares independence. It, it declares itself a nation. The next day, five nations descend on Israel in war to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Five nations. Egypt, uh, Iraq, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi. Oh no, I'm, I had one. Anyways, there, there they are. No, there's seven nations: Egypt, Iraq, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, the Holy War Army, which is a group of, of uh, Arabs, the uh, Arab. Uh, 
what is that again? The ALA, I have it here somewhere. Uh, Arab Liberation Army. By the way, this is a symbol of the Arab Liberation Army. Uh, Not too subtle, if you ask me. (laughs) So all these seven nations plus these other two armies all descend on Israel, attack it from every side. It's only one day old. What happens as an outcome? They've only, been, they've only had seven months to gather a little bit of military hardware. No, they've been gathering it all right. Seven months. And Israel fights back, and God allows the nation to expand. To expand? What? These are fully armed nations that are fighting against it, and somehow Israel comes out the victor. Uh, Nineteen years later, there's a six-day war, and in six days, they're going to wipe out Israel. Egypt is coming up from the south. Uh, Lebanon is coming down, or Syria is coming down from the north. Jordan and Iraq are coming from the east, and they're just going to shove Israel right off into the Mediterranean. That's the goal, to destroy Israel. It's a surprise attack. Nobody saw it coming. And what happens? Israel is victorious and expands its land again. And you're just like, how is this even possible? Six years later, on one of the holy days of Israel, the armies of the world come again to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Algeria, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, all attack Israel in a, in a surprise attack to wipe them off the face of the earth. And what happens? They expand their land again and take all of Sinai. It's just unbelievable. And, and you you got to look at it and go, like, what was going on there? How can this little tiny nation that just got created don't even have a chance to bring arms into their land? How do they win this battle? Well, you can ask one of the people who, who attends this church because he's Syrian. His name is George, and I've heard him talk about it. George Azure. He'll tell you, oh, yeah, my grandfather was in one of those, arm, one of those battles. He was a tank commander. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, we, they had hundreds and hundreds of Soviet tanks. They were just going to run over Israel. It was no problem. It was just going to happen. Thousands and thousands of tanks. And my, my, my grandfather is one of the tank drivers. And you're like, why? Oh, yeah, really, what happened? Oh, well, they crossed into Israel, and suddenly the fear of God hit them all. They got out of their tank and ran for their lives. And the Israel's, Israelis took over the tanks. And you're like, really? Yeah, that's what happened. The terror of God came over them, and they just ran. And there were actually clothing left behind as they ran across the desert out of their tanks. It's, it's bizarre. And it, it kind of reminds me of Joshua and Judges. It's the same kind of story. It's just like, that's so weird. It's almost exactly the same. And <laughs> You know, now Israel has a pretty impressive defense force. And if I was Hezbollah or Hamas, I think I'd think twice about attacking. But back then, they had very little. They were outgunned, outnumbered, five to one. You know, in any tank battle that's outnumbered five to one, you're going to lose. But no, they won dramatically.
So let's suppose for a minute that God is involved in the underdog versus Goliath type battles that have been happening in the modern world. Uh, and that God is indeed upholding the ancient covenants, then we have to ask another important question. If God fights for Israel, why hasn't Israel been given by God the peace that he promised to Israel? He promised that there would be peace in the land. Well, if you know of anything about Israel, the last 75 years, there's been no peace in Israel, zero. And it begs the question, why has Israel had to fight with so many nations? They fought more nations than anyone else in the last half of the uh, 20th century. I mean, I, I just pointed out the three major wars, but there were a, there's a war every couple of years in Israel. Uh, we can look at the human reasons, hatred, jealousy, disagreement over the land, but I have a feeling it goes deeper than that. If you take the whole of biblical Jewish history into account, you don't only see God fighting for Israel, do you? you also see God using the nations around Israel to punish Israel, to chastise Israel. So let's turn to one more passage in the Bible. This will be the last one for today. 1 Kings chapter 8. King Solomon is dedicating the temple of a God. And uh, he's praying for the future Israelites. And he's saying to God, God, when the future Israelites pray to this temple in your name, can you hear from heaven and answer their prayer? And, um, and he prays for all different sorts of things that might happen. He, pr he prays uh, if there's famine or drought, if, you know, if the people turn away from God, and he calls them to call, turn back to God. But there's one prayer, one section in that prayer of Solomon that's very pertinent for today. I want to read it to you. Um, it's specific prayer for those Israelites who might one day be taken hostage and dragged off to a foreign country. Does that sound familiar to you? That might have just happened recently, huh? Israelis taken hostage and dragged off to a foreign country. Maybe we should listen to what this prayer says. This is what it says. When they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captives and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if, if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city that you have chosen, this temple that I have built for your name, then from heaven, your heavenly dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy for they are your people and your inheritance. Whoa, that's an interesting take on the situation, don't you think? Joel Rosenberg of the All Israel News says this, in this passage, Solomon is offering a prayer that perfectly relevant to the moment we are in. Admittedly, some people will resist its premise because it's difficult to hear and accept. The focus of this prayer is repentance. Repentance. He goes on, if we forget that we are his, if we refuse to let him be our shepherd, we wander off, we refuse to let him protect us, then we will be attacked by wolves who hate us and seek to devour us. 
This is not God's fault. It's our fault. Solomon understood this, but Solomon also understood that there was a way back to God, even when the wolves attack, even when we are taken captive. It is time for the people of faith to rediscover this powerful prayer. If we truly want to defeat our enemies and get our hostages back, then we need to genuinely humble ourselves and genuinely repent of our sins and genuinely seek the face of God. Wow, that's an interesting twist on the conflict, isn't it? So I want to just conclude what I've talked about real quick, summarize it all. Since God's covenant with Israel is timeless, it's extremely likely that he's involved with Israel today, the Israel we know today, but that he's dealing with them in the terms of the old covenant. If we can see the miraculous we can see the miraculous preservation of Israel. We also have to open our eyes to the chastisement of God upon Israel in the constant military harassment of Israel. You, you can't really say one thing and not the other. <laughs> it's clear in the Bible all the way that that's how God dealt with them. Why would it be different today? And you can't just go like, oh, God's fighting Israel's victories and then say, oh, but... No, he's not chastising them with, with the harassment. No, they, they go hand in hand. Now, Israel is bound and determined to extract revenge for the October 7th massacre. And boy, do they ever go into a frenzy if you just hint at saying, well, you have some part to blame. Oh, my goodness. People are getting fired. People are getting ostracized. People are, I mean, do not say that. I mean, whoo. Even if someone has, says they have the slightest responsibility of the resentment of the Palestinians, people just freak out. And I get that. And I'm certainly not going to accuse Israel of wrongdoing that inspired that, that massacre. Absolutely not. God forbid that we would blame Israel for that. But the attitude of Israel's leadership is not very... Uh, repentant, is it? More defiant than anything. Uh, they're not interested in repenting. They're not interested in looking back over the history, their own history over the last you know, 4,000 years and going, oh, maybe God's trying to tell us something here. Maybe God has allowed some of our people to be taken hostage. I'm not saying it was the right or that they deserved it or whatever. I'm just saying... Maybe the heart of Israel is still not repentant, is still not turned, and certainly has still not turned to Jesus Christ, their Messiah, in, uh, in, in uh, repentance. Next week, I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty of the actual war. Is it a righteous war? Is it a sinful war? Is it a judgment war like in Joshua's day? What is a Christian's response to this war? So we're going to get into that next week. But for today, I want to say that one of the responses that Christians ought to have to this war is that we would pray for Israel. That we would follow Solomon's advice and repent on behalf of Israel. You know, and repent of the fact that we are all sinners. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And that we would pray that Israel would receive the Messiah, 
the Prince of Peace. Why will they not receive the Prince of Peace? They're so at war all the time. They're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to survive, I know. And so I just want to lead us in a prayer for Israel today. So let's bow and just pray for God's intervention in this whole situation. Father, we come before you today. We ask, Lord, that you would never give us a sense that we, we have become God's people now. We're so much better than the Israelites. We, we follow the Prince of Peace. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to know that we also need to repent. We also need to say sorry for the wrongs that we have done. Um, Lord, we're not that righteous. And we pray for Israel, Lord. We pray that you would turn again their hearts to you fully. Lord, we pray that they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would repent of disowning him, repent of the the rejection of your spirit who is trying to convince them that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We ask, Lord, that you would bring about a spirit of repentance. Lord, we pray for a wave of uh, revival in your church in Israel. Lord, the missionaries, the pastors, the teachers, the, the Christians that are in Israel, Lord, we pray that there would be a revival in the churches there and that it would spread to your people so that your people would, would come to know you again and be regrafted into their own tree. The natural branches, Lord, and become followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, your people twice over. And so, Father, we just pray for a revival in your church in Israel. Uh, we pray, Lord, for Israel as a whole, that it would turn to you and follow your ways, Lord. It's become very secular. It follows uh, much of Europe and, and, uh, and the, the very secular parts of North America. And so, Father, we just pray that you would bring about a revival in that land. Lord, we pray for the Palestinians and the Arabs who are in this conflict as well, Lord. We pray that justice will be done on, on those in Hamas who have been murderous. But, Lord, we pray for the protection of people who have no part in that war. And, Lord, we know that... M- uh, dozens and thou- probably thousands have been killed already. People who didn't have any part in the war. And Father, we, we pray that you would encourage the families. Lord, we pray for those Christians who are in Palestine, who are in Gaza, Lord. Uh, Lord, I think of this church in Gaza um, who has 800 people there and Hamas is, gath- is trying to get in the door and use it as one of their command bases because they know the, the Israelis don't want to hit a church. Uh, Lord, I pray for um, Tahini's four sisters who are in that church. Lord, we, we pray for them. We ask that you would spare them. Lord, we pray for all of the Christians, all of the people of, of the land, Lord, who are being pummeled. Lord, we pray for... Uh, 
Lord, we pray for the hostages, Lord. We pray that they would be released. Lord, we pray for the end of this war, Lord. We pray that the hostages would be released and Israel would relent. Lord, we ask that your will be done in this situation. Lord, we do pray that you would come again as the Prince of Peace and rule from Jerusalem like you said you would. And so, Lord, we offer up these prayers in faith, knowing the outcome, that in the end you will come and set things right. But, Lord, we, we don't know when that is. And so in this here and now, we ask, Lord, that you would intervene and release the hostages and end the hostilities. For we pray this in Jesus' name.